Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2020. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. Uh, whoever you are and wherever you are, things that we so believe in in our community is that you should be celebrated. That for far too long in the world of church and in Christianity, we've almost just tolerated people or told people we accept them. But I think that everything that we see in the life of Jesus is good news that we celebrate every single human being. That we are not these depraved creatures who are horrible and just sinners and God is just sick of us and needs to fix us. Instead, the story is that we've always been good. That the very beginning, God said that all was good. That the story of Jesus is that God sees every single one of us as God's children, that God loves every single one of us, that God enjoys every single one of us, and that God celebrates us, that Jesus shows us the fullness of who God is and how God sees us, and it shows us the fullness of who we are and how we can see ourselves. And so wherever you are this morning, I hope genuinely that you begin to celebrate yourself, that you celebrate the complexity and the diversity of all of who you are going on inside. That this morning, there are parts of you that are filled with joy and hope and anticipation and excitement. And there are other parts of you that are filled with fear and anxiety and worry and figuring it out. And can you make it to that thing? Or will that relationship or this job or the dollars and cents in your bank account and to be human is to hold all of those complexities at the same time. But regardless of the details and the myriads of those emotions or those facts or the things that make up you, can you celebrate who you are? And if you can begin to celebrate who you are and where you are, then you can begin to celebrate who others are. And that whether that other person is male or female or trans or gay or straight or bi or rich or poor, moderately incomed, Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians, uh, black or white, Asian, Latino, that their external um, diversity is complex and different than you. Can you celebrate and love them as well? And if we can honor and love and celebrate ourselves, if we can celebrate who our neighbor is, if we can see people as people, then we can do the most audacious thing that Jesus asks of any of us. Then we can even love our enemies. And as we're in this season of Advent, as we prepare for Christmas, then I pray that you would begin to see the world in a new way. That what would be birthed in you this Christmas season is your capacity to celebrate yourself and your capacity to celebrate others as well. We're gonna sing some songs that remind us of who God is and what God has for us. Uh, we're going to have some fun conversations with one another. Uh, I'm excited for each different component, uh, and we're going to live into a season of anticipation. So pray with me uh, as we gather this morning from wherever we're at. God, thanks that you are good and that you are kind. And God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, Jesus, I pray that in this moment that we would be prepared for the reality that you are already with us. God, that we never need to invite you into anything, that we don't need to invite you into spaces in our lives because you are already there. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of that reality? God, that you care about every component of our lives, that there's nothing that gets 
hidden from you. There's nothing that we keep from you. And God, would that bring us hope? Would it bring us hope, God, that we get to be fully ourselves with you all of the time? And so, God, we pray and we ask and we hope that we would celebrate ourselves. God, that we would know that you celebrate us, that we would be filled with hope and joy and peace this Advent season, that new life would be birthed in us as we anticipate and remember the life that you birthed into the world through Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, New Abbey. Welcome to Advent. We are in the Advent season, which is a time of uh, anticipation of the coming of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. And each week during our gathering, we take time to look at the wreath and light the candles. The wreath itself is evergreen, representing that God's life-giving love is ever, ever present, ever um, enhancing our lives and causing us to grow in the various ways that God's love manifests through us. And each week we light one of the lights to be reminded of the ways that God's love comes to us. So today on the second Sunday of Advent, we light both the first light, which is the light of hope, um, the hope that comes to us unexpectedly uh, in times of upheaval and uncertainty. Um, we remember all the ways that hope has come, is coming, and will continue to come to us in times of calmness or amidst the storms, in the quiet moments, as well as in the chaotic times, in the grasping for more, as well as in the times of contentment. So we light the first candle, the candle of hope. And today we also light the second candle, the candle of peace. This week we focus our hearts on a holy announcement, the declaration of a new revolution dawning, a revolution that is centered on peace a peace that the world cannot understand and the world does not give, a peace that subverts corrupt power structures, a peace that preferences the least popular, the poor, the marginalized, and the outcast over the ones with power and privilege. And so we light the second candle at Advent, the candle of peace. Uh, we're going to get to meet an interesting person, which I love that we do this every single week because everything about New Abbey is highlighting the people in our community. Uh, it's highlighting uh, the body of Christ. That's what we believe about. Uh, that's what we believe in, uh, that it's about conversation. It's about highlighting our community. It's about telling a story of our actual church and the people within it. Uh, it's not just about the people who are on stage. Um, it's not about the people who are on payroll, uh, that our jobs are to empower um, your narratives and so that our narratives are the ones that change the world. So I'm excited today for a few different reasons. I'm going to invite up Josh Cobia. I will uh, distance myself from you. This is Stay yeah, away. This is good. This is half of my arm is half the distance you're supposed to yeah, be away. Yeah, about six feet. Yeah. Something like that. The stage my, is like six feet. Wingspan is six two and a half inches. So if I just do that, I know people you know are. Your wingspan. Yeah, you got it. You don't know your wingspan. Eleven inches. You got to Yeah. Oh wow. I don't know what to <laughs> do with that. But uh, here we are. Here we are. Um, I've known Josh for a long time, uh, which has been fun uh, for a lot of different reasons. But one of the exciting things is maybe like three years ago, uh, we had this idea of you're pastoring another church, 
and maybe that would be like a new abbey on the west side, and um, it, it, it didn't work for a lot of different reasons. And then the last year kind of came back full circle. Um, and so Josh is going to be starting New Abbey Santa Monica, New Abbey Ooh. West Side, whatever we call it, the newest of the abbeys, newerabbey.com, newishabbey.org. You get it. You'll find it. Um, and so I'm excited about that. But I'm excited about you as a leader and what you care about and your authenticity, your vulnerability, and there's just so much I appreciate about your journey. And so instead of me telling about it, this is why you are up here. As an interesting person. As an interesting person. So Josh Kobia, be interesting, everybody. Woo. Thank you, Corey. Thanks, guys. What's up, New Abbey? What's up, internet people? Um, yeah, pulling double duty today, doing music and then this. Um, but it's awesome. This is such a, an, a crazy, amazing, uh, ridiculous church, and I'm so stoked to be able to say that I'm a part of it. Um, I was meeting with Frankie the, like two, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I don't know. Uh, and I was just, kind of, we were talking, and I was like, oh, we get to do that. And that was the first time out of my mouth that I said the words we and New Abbey together. And I just stopped, and I was like, that's so cool that I get to say that right now, like we. Um, so I'm just thrilled. Uh, Corey asked me to do this super last minute, so it was last night or last afternoon, <laughs> and uh, I was like, I have seen a bunch of these, but like, what do you want me to, what can I say and what can't I say? And he was like, New Abbey can handle wherever you take us. And my first reaction was like, oh boy, <laughs> um, this church is crazy. Uh, but it's also, I actually know that to be true which is super unique and authentic and genuine that this community actually can hold stories. They can hold real stories. And if we're being real and authentic and we're being truthful, then there's space for that. And I think that that is enormous. Um, and so I started just last night, I took a walk and I was kind of like, what do I say? How do I be interesting uh, to this group of people that are incredibly interesting? Every interesting person I've seen up here gives this like amazing story. I'm in tears by the end or I'm laughing by the end. It's one of the two and I'm in tears usually over both. And it's incredible. So I was like, there's a lot of pressure to lead up to. Uh, usually I just have to sing, which isn't a big deal, but now I actually have to speak. So what am I gonna share about? And I thought about my whole story. And then Corey was like, you got five minutes. And I was like, okay, can't go into the whole story. But I will give you a brief rundown uh, of what used to make me interesting, and then hopefully what makes me interesting today, uh, which are different. <laughs> uh, what used to make me interesting uh, is that I'm a megachurch pastor, uh, third generation. My grandfather was a pastor. My uncles are all pastors. My father was a pastor in the Southern Baptist tradition, which meant, yeah, which meant like a lot of things. When I went to seminary, uh, which I did, uh, which might come as a shock as I share the rest of my story. Um, when I went to seminary, they told me I could not do two things. Those two things were drinking and dancing. I refused to sign that because those are the two things that I, at the time, did best. So uh, I did not fit into the Southern Baptist world too much, but my dad was a missionary, and so we moved all over the world. I was born in Texas, then we moved to South Carolina, then we moved to Sacramento, then we moved to Amsterdam, then we moved to New York, then we moved to New Jersey, then we moved to San Francisco, and that was all before I turned 14 years old. Then I went to three different high schools for the arts, and then I went to two different colleges and then one seminary in which I could not drink and dance. So I have been a perpetual new kid all my life. Uh, I was signed uh, at a young age at 16 to a music label uh, by a rock and roll group called Journey. And I toured with them uh, for three years. And then outside of that, did my own thing. And then outside of that, got in this really weird, crazy, evil tradition called Christian music. And I did that uh, for at least four or five years. And then I went to seminary. And I became a senior pastor at age 27. 
And then I became a church starter at age 28. I was a youth pastor to Caitlin uh, Jenner, to Kylie Jenner, um, and to, uh, what's the other one's name? Kylie's the only one that's important. Kendall. uh, And did that in their backyard for a year. Um, I was also there when Caitlin transitioned, and I wrote a Facebook post that I thought was just going to be a Facebook post, and then it ended up on the Washington Post, and I ended up on CNN, and three million people wrote it, or read it, not wrote it, hopefully didn't write it. They read it, and it changed my life. And it changed my life because for the first time ever, I began to speak truthfully about where I stand on who's in and who's out and and how big God's kingdom really is and how gorgeous that kingdom is and how inclusive that it really is. And I will tell you that three million people may have read that, but about 26 of them were senior pastors who had also started this church that I got. And I got set down by a council. Now, whenever in Christianity, we do councils uh, that never really works out too awesome. Um, and this council was no different. And I got sit down and I got the beat down from 26 megachurch pastors. And if you're wondering what those megachurches are, I'll list them. No, I'm kidding. Um, but if you're in Los Angeles, you've probably been to one. I'll say that. Uh, and I got the beat down. And they told me that I was wrong. And they told me that I needed to write a retraction or, quote, unquote, you'll never work in this town again. And I chose the I'll never work in this town again option. (laughs) And we started a church in Santa Monica. And that was beautiful. And it was gorgeous. And uh, it was all the things. But in that spectrum, in that space of four years, uh, my brother almost died. He was in a motorcycle accident, the Torres Aorta. Um, We dealt with a lot of pain in our own community. Uh, I was dealing with things that I had no idea how to deal with at age 28 with no prior therapy and no outlet for that. Uh, On top of that, my wife and I lost a baby um, very, very late term, and it was an awful situation. And uh, all of this I was holding in, and all of this was I was was funneling towards not dancing, but the other thing that I was really good at, which was drinking. (laughs) And I drank a lot. And so we come to the point now, those are the things that used to make me interesting, and I've told those stories, but I think what's so interesting about New Abbey and what's so beautiful about New Abbey is when I see people come up here, I tend to see them tell stories that maybe they've never told before, that maybe they were never brave enough to tell before, that they're using this space as a space of vulnerability and a space to really be real with who they are. And so this is the first time I've told this part of the story, which is that my name is Joshua David Cobia, and I am a raging alcoholic, (laughs) and I'm a pastor. And I hold both uh, in a really complex and interesting and weird way. Um, And so I turned to that drinking, and I kept drinking, and I kept drinking. When I say I'm an alcoholic, when I stand in the rooms of AA, which is a program that I'm in, and a 12-step tradition, when I stand in there and I share my story, there are guys with tattoos up and down their body who were sticking needles in them that look at me and go like, man, (laughs) I thought I was bad. You are bad, right? Like I was drinking to the point uh, that I could have died, that I really could have died multiple different times, Uh, and holding it all together in this weird way that I knew I didn't need to, but still all of that sort of Southern Baptist tradition, all of that Christian stuff, all that evangelicalism was telling me, no, 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 you have to have it all together. You have to be strong. You have to hold it in. And so I held it in for far too long. I held it in until it all sort of came crashing down and burning to the point that I couldn't wake up without having to take a drink because I was shaking and I was scared to death. So I went to my church board at the time, and I told them exactly what was going on, and I said, this has got out of control. I don't know how to control it, and they were so gracious, and they were like, take some time away, and I took 90 days, which in the sober world is like what it takes to kind of get your brain back together, 
And I think they thought that it'd be 90 days of like full on sobriety. <laughs> I was sober for maybe four of those days. So I came back and said, I don't have a handle on any of this, man, any of this. I don't know how to do this. For the first time in my life, I've encountered a problem that I can't sing away, that I can't write away, that I can't smile away, that I can't like convince other people that I don't have. I truly have this thing and I have it in a bad way and I need to step away. So I stepped away and that was a year ago and a month ago, uh, almost to the day. And a wild journey ensued of uh, trying to get better and, and, and going into rooms that I never thought I'd be a part of, going into spaces I never thought I'd be a part of. And I can tell you this, I found God in those rooms and in those spaces in ways that I've never seen in a church community. I've never seen it like that. Um, and I would sit and I would get embittered because, you know, this is a spiritual program and I'm supposed to be a mature spirituality, but I'll, I'll tell you this, I had done all of this deconstruction, so much stuff we talk about here at No Abbey. I've, I've read all the books. I have all the lingo. I can disprove Paul nine ways to Saturday, right? Like I know that kind of stuff and none of that helped me in the rooms of AA. And then I was reading this guy, Thomas Merton, that some of you know very well, and, and he talks about this thing called a second naivete, which basically means like you have this point in your spiritual journey where it's the first naivete, where everything is beautiful and wonderful and it's true. I can hold everything as Bible gospel truth. And then we go through this crazy thing, if we're wise enough, smart enough, and we're journeying on the right path, or we go through this crazy thing where we begin to deconstruct everything and pull everything apart, and what a fun time that is, right? We get to say, oh, everything that I knew, now it looks different, and now I can move this here and this here and this here, and faith becomes this wide-open thing. And so I went into AA, and I went into these rooms thinking I could do the exact same thing, right? I'll move all this around, and little did I know, you've only got weeks in here. You had 31 years in the church to do this. You're not going to catch up that quickly. And so what I had to do in my spiritual life is go back to the basics, Go back to these weird concepts that Jesus might actually love me for just who I am in the space that I am, not because I can prove something to you and not because I can't. And so I spent a year trying to like prove, 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 prove that I'm better. And here's a line that I said all year, which I've only recently learned was complete horseshit, <laughs> which is that I kept saying during this year, I just need to get back to life. I just need to get back to my life. If I can power through these 12 steps, if I can get a sponsor, if I can do all these things, maybe I can get back to my regular life and everything can be back to normal. And what I didn't realize until now, until looking back in a really beautiful way a year plus later, is that that was real life. That what I was trying to get back to was something that was hurting me all along and there's a new reality and God is much bigger than I ever thought and I'm stepping into that going, this is real life. I think a lot of us, for 2020 have just been, how many of you have thought that same thought? I just need to get back to real life. I don't want to keep wearing this mask. I want to go back to work. I want to go to a movie theater. I want to go to church with people. I want to see people. Just Can we get just get back to real life? Real life is here. It's happening right now. It's happening on your little screen. It's happening everywhere we go. This is real, real life. And so I invite you with myself, I'm learning this too, on this journey of accepting life exactly as it is on life's terms and actually believing that God can do something with you right here, right now. And part of that awesomeness is that we're going to start this community in Santa Monica uh, that is New Abbey and people don't have to drive to Pasadena all the time from the west side, which is a, like, a terrible, the, the 405 is a moral failure. So anyway... <laughs> 
going from that side of town to this side of town, but we get to actually join in that together as a big group. And I am so thrilled to be a part of this community. I'm so thrilled that I get to share this story that's so awkward and weird. <laughs> and I'm so thankful to all of you for being with me in this. And thanks to Corey. So that's all I got. Thank you for letting me be interesting. I would hug you if I could. In my heart, I'm hugging you. <laughs> Heart hugs. Heart hugs. Um, hey, you can stay up here, though, for, okay. for a bit, because I think this is powerful. Something that I so believe in about the capacity of our community is that there are things that we're reclaiming all of the time. There was a season in life where pastors or different people lived in these glass houses, and then we would find out, unfortunately, that uh, they weren't always living up to the things that they were saying. And I think something that we care about at New Abbey is it's okay if you're a wounded healer. In fact, maybe you have more to say if you can be authentic about that in your journey because the rest of the community is probably wounded healers as well. And what we believe in is not a God who's perfect, which, by the way, is not even a biblical concept. <laughs> we believe in a God who meets us where we're at in our humanity, which is an imperfect process. And that when we get to keep talking honestly about our imperfect process, it's there that we find healing. It's there that we find transformation. When we get to say these things out loud, just like it happens every week and meet an interesting person, there's always somebody else who says, oh my God, that's me too. I never thought I would hear that in church. And you didn't hear a story of, and then Christ came in and I got <laughs> baptized and I'm never drinking again. That's the story of I'm figuring it out, and sobriety is hard, and, and, you, and you care about that path, and you are figuring out what that means for your life now with your wife and with another community, um, and that's really beautiful. And then part of the other Venn diagram of that is starting new, new abbeys, that we are trying to tell the biggest story of God in 2020, soon to be 2021, uh, and the ways that we do that is that we need multiple, we need as many communities as want to tell the story to tell the story of a bigger story. Um, that each community is unique to itself. The people who make that place up have something unique to tell about God's story in this world. And so I'm excited that you're somebody who's going to lead that, uh, that you get to lead that out from this authentic and vulnerable place. Uh, the purpose of, of this was not to like, you know, and then here's New Abbey, <laughs> but we're kind of here um, and there'll be more information to come. If you're somebody who lives on the West Side, I hope that you connect with Josh, that you get to know him and that you hear about the opportunity um, to tell this bigger story of God, um, you know, 30 miles away, but those 30 miles are, are a long way in a place like Los Angeles, particularly when traffic's back. Um, so I am grateful that this is what we got to, that this is what we get to do every single week, that this is a reflection of how we want to live our lives, that this is the DNA of what our community is and what our church is, not for what we do on Sundays, but for who we are the other six and a half days a week. Um, so Josh Cobia. Thank you for being Thank interesting. You. Thanks, Josh. Air hugs. Hugs, hugs. <laughs> COVID hugs. Uh, I'm going to invite up Eric Johnson, who is preaching today, the one, the only, the best dressed uh, for sure. Um, anyways, I've got like really, I have no transitions coming. So there you go. Eric Johnson, everybody. Great. <laughs> Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so relieved because Josh and Corey have preached my entire message. So good night and God bless you. <laughs> um, but I, I will share a little something. But before we do that, um, uh, everything that, that Morris Cicely shared about 
uh, this first and second week of Advent was so important. And so um, before I give you a message of peace, let's talk a little bit about hope. So uh, click the uh, conversation time uh, button. We're going to send you to your groups and let's talk about this. Can you name a time that someone gave you hope? Enjoy. I'll see you in a minute. Hey, welcome back. I hope that your conversation time was filled you and filled others with hope uh, because that's the thing that we need to hold on to. The, the scriptures say that hope is the anchor of our soul and with all that we're facing in our world today, hope is the one thing that we need to hold on to. And in sharing all of that, uh, let's talk a little bit about, about the message of hope. All right, so I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, from the uh, New International Version, and it reads as follows. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, when I was reading this passage and the other uh, passages that went along with this for the second week of Advent, um, a lot of it was confessing sins, repentance, and judgment. And after, like, reading the, the, the fourth passage of scriptures, I kind of just went, ooh, that's just really heavy. That doesn't seem to bring a lot of hope and a lot of joy. So what is really being talked about? And in order to completely understand that, we need to go back to like some definitions of what these words mean. We need to reclaim uh, that the message is not about judging you and beating you down and what you're not doing right but it's probably about something else. So the first term I want to talk about is uh, this whole thing about sin and sinners. Now, the artist formerly known as Sissy, uh, Moira Sicily, has done a tremendous job of talking about what sin is. If you go back into the series about Psalms, that part three, she does an amazing job of talking about what it is and shares what uh, Dave Rogers um, gave as a definition that, it is to choose other than love is sin. Choosing other than love is sin. But I want to read, uh, in addition to that, I want to read another definition from uh, Father Richard Rohr in the book, The Naked Now. And it reads this. 
The word signifies not moral inferiors so much as people who do not know who they are and whose they are. People who have not connection to their inherent dignity and importance. They have to struggle for it by all kinds of futile performances. What a waste. Thus, do not hate sinners, quote unquote, or look down on them. Feel sorry for what they are missing out on. When I, when I read that, um, when I hear what Josh just shared, uh, when I look at my own life, so much of my life as a Christian was performance. Trying to uh, uh, either look down on others because of what I thought was my moral superiority or avoiding even coming to church and avoiding others because of what I thought was my moral inferiority. And that is not what it's all about. What it's all about is missing this message of love. If we are not living and choosing love, if we're not receiving the message that we are made in the likeness and image of God and that you are worthy of love, then how we live our life will be performance. How we live our life will miss the mark. And that is the sin. So with that in mind, let's read this passage again from the Message Bible. And this is how it reads. The good news of Jesus Christ, the message, begins here. Following to the letter, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Watch closely. I'm sending my preacher ahead of you. He'll make the road smooth for you. Thunder in the desert. Prepare God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wild, preaching a baptism of life change that leads to forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea and Jerusalem, and as they confessed their sins, were baptized by him in the Jordan River into a changed life. John wore a camel hair habit, tied at the waist with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild field honey. As he preached, he said, the real action comes next. The star in this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will change your life. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. His baptism, a holy baptism by the Holy Spirit, will change you from the inside out. This is what we've been talking about week after week, that it's not about changing the exterior. It's changing you from the inside out. This is the message. This is, this is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that we read from Genesis to Revelation. This is the good news that God lives within us. And he is bringing life change to us from the inside out. There's another part of this. So as we, when we read this passage again, we, and we read about John the Baptist, that he is this messenger that has been sent to prepare the way. He's been sent to clear the way, to clear your misconceptions, to clear the things that are going to cause you to miss the message that's coming and the messenger that's coming. And so he, he, he comes into Jerusalem and Judea. 
he preaches this message that opens your eyes to a new truth. The other part about, about John the Baptist is, unlike anybody else in the New Testament, two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, take great attention to the fact of John had a kind of different way of dressing and a different way of eating. You don't read in any of the Gospels about what, really what Jesus ate. Then There was no big deal about his diet or any of the disciples, what they ate or the clothes that they wore. But John, there's particular attention to the fact that he ate locusts and wild honey and that he dressed with this camel-haired uh, outfit with a leather belt. All that to say is that John was just a little different. John had these unusual things about him. And that's the thing about the messengers that come into our lives, that sometimes just to get our attention so that we can see this truth and pave the way into what we need to know, they're going to be a little bit different. They're going to be a little bit odd. And sometimes maybe the people who brought you hope when you were sharing um, in, your, in your groups, that, that there was something about them that got your attention. I can think of no better movie to bring this to life than my all-time favorite movie. And I, I love films. If you ever come by to, to visit our place, there are, I, there are tons of DVDs and Blu-rays. I'm, I'm a pop culture geek. I love movies. But my favorite movie of all time is the 1946 classic directed and written by Frank Capra, It's a Wonderful Life. What a beautiful movie. Uh, I love this for so many reasons. Um, it was, uh, it, it, it came out right after World War II, and it was a box office flop. It wasn't packing people out in the theaters. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart. Uh, didn't win a single Academy Award. And then it just kind of faded away into obscurity until the, the rights became available for it, and it was shown in syndication, and it took on this whole new life, and now it's this beloved classic. And, spoiler alert, I'm going to say a lot about this movie, but in my defense, you've had 74 years to watch it. <laughs> so, here we go. The story of, of, and here's this other thing that I just love. I'm, I'm a screenwriter. I, I, I love writing scripts, and one of the things that we learned in, in Screenwriting is that whatever your movie is about, the audience has to figure out what it's about within the first 20 minutes of the film. But not It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. You are so fascinated by George Bailey's life, played by Jimmy Stewart. You're so fascinated by it that you really don't realize what this movie is all about until you're two-thirds of the way in. And I, anybody else? How many times have you seen this movie and cried? I bawl. I, I just watched a little bit of it this morning, and already I was bawling. I bawl every time little George Bailey is, is trying to stop Mr. Gower from uh, 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 delivering poison instead of medicine. And uh, when little George comes back in and Gower is, is upset and, and he's been drunk, 
because uh, his son has died, and so he doesn't realize that he didn't put medicine in the bottle. He put poison in the bottle, and he starts slapping George. And I just immediately begin bawling because George is crying out, Mr. Gower, you did something terrible. You put poison. I'm telling you, it's poison that's in that bottle. And when you see Gower taste it and he realizes that it's poison, and George goes, don't slap me in my, in my sore ear. And you just start bawling. And then all the ways that George, throughout his life, from the time that he was a kid all the way to he's an, a married adult, how he has never escaped Bedford Falls. He wanted to go and see the world. He wanted to discover the world. He wanted to travel. But he ends up still in Bedford Falls. And just before we play this scene, what's happened is that he's had to take over the savings and loan uh, after his father died. He never gets to leave. Uh, nothing seems to be going right for George. And his uncle Billy has lost $8,000 in the bank examiners there. And if there's no way to recover this money, and if there's no way to explain how this happened, George is going to go to jail. He comes home. He completely loses it in front of his children and his wife. He doesn't see any hope, and that brings us to this scene. See, I'm already a hot mess. <laughs> a, little, a little historical background about that scene and about the movie. Um, when Jimmy Stewart came back from the war, I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he experienced. But he didn't believe that he would ever be able to act again. And when he was cast by Frank Capra to, to do this role, he didn't feel like he, he had the gift anymore. He didn't feel like he had the chops to to do what was required to carry this film. And believe it or not, it was Lionel Barrymore who played the evil Mr. Potter, was the one that, that went to Jimmy Stewart and he said, you've got to play this role. You are a gifted actor. I know you can do this. I know you have it in you. I know you have the stuff. And so what you just saw right there, that particular scene, the reason why it's so quiet and why the, the, the camera angles in so close on it is because it was a rehearsal. They were going over this over the scene and in and just doing the rehearsal and just like doing some uh, uh, some B-roll footage to just see how it was going to go. And Jimmy Stewart put everything into into that that part right there. All of his desperation, all of it, he put it into that scene right there. And then when they called cut, Frank Capra said, "That's great. Let's do it again." And Jimmy said, 
I don't think I have it to do that again. So they had to uh, find a way to edit that rehearsal shot in. But how have we all been touched? How many of you have felt? How many of you have been there? Because God knows how many times I've been there. How many times where I thought that there was no way out and all I could say was, God, show me the way. Show me the way. And so in this scene, right after this happens, George Bailey meets Clarence Oddbody. What a name. He's a, he's a goofy-looking guy. He really is. He, is. he is an odd body. His fellow angels say that he, he has childlike faith, but the IQ of a rabbit. <laughs> Isn't that cruel? But, and, and this is the messenger that God sends to George Bailey to help him see what he could not see. The thing about Clarence Oddbody is that he doesn't have his wings. He is not perfect. He's flawed. He, he has needs just like anyone else. Like I said, the angel said that he had the IQ of a rabbit. He's not perfect, but he's the perfect person to bring the message that George Bailey needs. And what is that message? What is it that, for everyone who has seen this movie, what is it that George needs to see? Because for all of his life, George has viewed his life as one failure after another. And what Clarence comes into his life and does, what transforms him to help and helps him see is that his life is not a failure. He helps him see what the world would look like if he had never been born. And it is through this experience that George overgoes, undergoes a transformation from the inside out, and he realizes that in spite of all the terrible things that he has experienced, that his life is not a failure. And the last words that you see, the message from Clarence is this, that no man is a failure who has friends. Why does this movie touch us so deeply? Why do I cry every time I see it? Because all of us have experienced this. All of us have gone through these painful situations where we thought life was over. All of us were at the end of our rope at one time or another, and God sent to us the messenger. And God continues to, over and over again in our lives, bring us messengers. And, and bear this in mind, because the messenger is not necessarily perfect, and I, I can speak for myself, that there are times in my life where that messenger has come, and because of what I perceive as their flaws, I don't listen to the message. And then God brings me another messenger. And then God will bring me another messenger until I can finally come to my senses and hear this message. I, let me share a couple in my own life. I, I moved out of the house because of, of all that I had experienced and all I dealt with in terms of abuse. I, I was finally out of the house. And I ended up getting a speeding ticket. And in order to make up that ticket, I had to do the unbearable eight hours of traffic school on a Saturday. So there I am. I, I, I can't get out of it. I've got to be there. And God sends me the messenger. The instructor of the traffic school program was an African-American sheriff who was the same height as my dad, 
an African-American just like my dad. And he be, as he began to try to start doing this eight-hour class, he started to have a breakdown right in front of all of us. He started talking about how when he signed up to become a sheriff, when he signed up to become a law enforcement officer, that he wanted to make a difference in people's lives, that, that he, wanted, he wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the person that would, would stop the evils of this, of this world. But he said 80% of the time when he was brought out on a call, it was for a domestic dispute. And all he saw was violence in the home after violence in the home after violence in the home. And he didn't have the tools to deal with it. And so every time that he came home, he would take his frustration out on his family. And he said that sometimes my anger would be so uncontrollable that I would choke my daughter. And I have no relationship with my daughter now because of my out-of-control violence. And he broke down in front of me, and I began bawling because what I saw was my father. I saw through this messenger, I saw what I never was allowed to see before, my father's humanity, my father's brokenness. For so many times, God had sent other messengers into my life who kept telling me, Eric, you need to forgive your father so that you can move forward. And it was, why do I have to forgive? Why doesn't he change? And the simple answer is because you're the one who's listening, and he isn't. It's never about the external. It's always about internal change. And so when this happened, I went back to my mother and I said, Mom, this is the experience that I just had. Is this what, what changed my father? And she said, yes. And because, because of that, I was able to see his brokenness. And I started, as Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so I would walk up to my father whenever I saw him with my arms open wide, and I would give him the biggest hug. And the first few times, he would just stand there like I was covered in snot. But eventually, when we would greet each other, he looked for that hug. He needed that hug. And something tremendous happened. I was receiving messages, and then I was being transformed. And now I was becoming the messenger for my father. It was a 40-year process. But it ended with my father receiving the message. It ended with my father finally seeing that whatever he had done in the past, that he was still loved, loved by me and loved by God. I'll tell you one more. Back in 2007, at the church that I was at, um, um, I, 27 years at one church, 19 years in full-time ministry, and it all came to an end through the moral failure of the senior pastor. It killed the church, and it was devastating Because of, because of so much of it was about this man's prosperous lifestyle, um, I was barely making any money to begin with. Um, and when this died, we had nothing. We had no car. We were living in affordable housing. 
Um, and the only job that was available to me was a minimum wage, part-time job at Pasadena City College. And I thought, this is the end. That prayer that George Bailey prays, that was my prayer. Because I told God, I'm in free fall. I'm not holding on by a thin branch. I am in free fall. And God, if you don't catch me, I don't know where I'm going to land. My, my daughter is a senior in high school, and I, I, where am I going to get the money for her prom? She deserves to have a prom. She deserves to have this graduation. She deserves to have these things. And I don't even know where we're going to get rent. I don't know where our next meal is going to come from. I said, which has been my prayer ever since then. God, before you change my situation, help me see what needs to change in me. And God would send messengers into my life. Messengers that let me know that I was loved, that this wasn't God forsaking me, that God was with me, that God was in me. And in particular, the, the story of Joseph. That here's Joseph, the 17-year-old, just like me, a 17-year-old called into ministry. Joseph is a 17-year-old who's been given a, a dream of what he's going to become. And he is betrayed by his, uh, by his family, sold into slavery, and then falsely accused of rape, and then, uh, and then left in prison until he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh gives him a wife, and he has two children. And for the first time in my life, as many times as I, as I read Joseph's story, I never paid attention to this one little detail, is that when Joseph names his sons, it says, and, and you can read this in Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50, when Joseph names his sons, it tells you what those names mean. His firstborn was Manasseh. And Manasseh means that God has caused me to forget the grief, the sorrow, the pain, the suffering that I've endured from my father's house to now. And then his second son's name was Ephraim. And Ephraim means that God has caused me to prosper in the land of my suffering. And I began to bawl because I said, God, I don't know what that is. I don't know what you did for Joseph that overwhelmed him in such a way that every time he says the names of his sons, he's talking about the goodness of God. But whatever that is, would you overwhelm me in that same way? And that's what happened to me. First, it was a change from the inside, but it changed my circumstances on the outside. And here I am today, the man with no college degree, overseeing summer schools, creating systems for, our, for educational equity and justice. This is not a one-time thing. This is always happening in our lives. Over and over and over again, God is bringing us messengers to bring that internal change so that we can then be the messenger for somebody else. This was the thing that at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and I don't have the verse up there, but uh, just for a moment, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for my harm, God has turned it to my good for the saving of many. 
And this is the important part of the, of the message. This is the important part of what I'm sharing to you today, is that it's time, yes, you're getting everything that you need. You're receiving everything that you need for internal change, but it's not just for you. It's for you and somebody else. There are people that need you to be the messenger. It's time for you to be the messenger. And so we will constantly go in our lives in this, in this cycle of receiving and then giving out. Like it, uh, and if you'd put this last verse up, Luke 22, this is what Jesus says to Peter before Peter ever betrays Christ. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. We will always be wounded healers. We will always go through the process of scales falling from our eyes. God will constantly bring messengers into our lives and then we are to turn around and, and be messengers for somebody else. And at the same time we're receiving, it's the same time that we're giving out. This is what Josh was just sharing with us, that yes, in the midst of, of him recovering, he is still being a messenger. We are all called to be messengers. And this is the message today, for you to be the messenger. We, there, Right now, I've been given an opportunity with the school district that there are LGBTQ students that are looking for a mentor. They're in group homes and they're in need of someone to come alongside them, someone who understands their pain. We have these opportunities that are coming. And this is what I invite you into because this is the life. And it's a wonderful life. And so with that, Let's go back into our conversations and answer this question. What will you do to be a messenger for someone else? God bless you. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.